God would pass over the house and the firstborn would be saved. Yeah, we need those, don't we? Because of the blood of the lamb, then that God would pass over the house and the firstborn would be saved. And in celebration of God passing over their houses and their escape from Egyptian slavery happening, consequently, they were eating this Passover meal. And it's the Passover meal that they're eating. And this is what I think a lot of people don't understand. But it's this Passover meal that they're eating in the upper room that Jesus is about to reconfigure into his own supper. Because within 12 hours or so from this moment, he will become the fulfillment of the Passover lamb of the Old Testament by becoming the true Passover lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. So so now that he's becoming the fulfillment of the Passover lamb in the Old Testament, he's reconfiguring the Passover meal into his own supper or into the Lord's Supper. And, And Jesus is reconfiguring the Passover meal because he's about to reconfigure how it is that he relates to mankind. You understand that? That's why at the Last Supper, Jesus says in Luke 22, 20, He says, this cup is the New Testament of my blood, which is shed for you. There was about to be a major shakeup. There was about to be a major transition and a reconfiguring as to how God relates to mankind and how God dispenses his grace to mankind because Jesus shed his blood, bringing in the New Testament. It's the New Testament of Jesus' blood because Jesus' blood is what brought in this New Testament economy that you and I are currently living in. His blood brought us out of an Old Testament economy and brought us into a New Testament economy. And his his blood and his death is what brought that in. And the reason is because of what Hebrews 9, 16, and 17 teaches us. Hebrews 9, 16, and 17, it says... For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Listen, Jesus' blood brings in the New Testament because where where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Because a testament is a force after The testator is dead. And that seems confusing at first, but it actually works the exact same way today. At some point in our lives, we would all be wise to have a last will and testament drawn up, wouldn't we? That would probably be a smart thing to do. While I'm thinking about that, why don't you make note of that? We should probably probably do that. And and how a last will and testament works is, is that it's not enforced until the death of the testator. That's exactly how it, how it works. And so Jesus calls it in the New Testament of his blood because the testament isn't of force until the death of the testator. And what's happening at the Last Supper is, is there's a major transition happening as to how God relates to mankind, how God dispenses his grace to mankind. And Jesus is saying, these things are changing in the New Testament of my blood is about to be enforced. And as, I, as I'm making those reconfigurations, I'm going to reconfigure the Passover meal into my own supper. Because though these reconfigurations are something new, there are a lot of similarities. And so Jesus reconfigures the Passover meal into his own supper because many of the same things he wanted to accomplish from the Passover meal with the Israelites he now wants to accomplish from the Lord's Supper with us, the church. Because you see, there are a whole lot of similarities between the circumstances surrounding the lives of the Israelites leading up to that first Passover and our lives leading up to salvation. The testimony of a Jew coming out of Egypt and our testimony of salvation, you'd be shocked how similar those two things actually sound. And I want us to look at that, the similarities between the Israelites' testimony and our testimony. Here's what I mean. 
This is the testimony of a Jew leading up to the first Passover. The Jews, they were, they were being held in bondage by the dominant world power at that time, which was Egypt. They were being held in bondage by their wicked king, Pharaoh. Every day they worked as slaves under the crack of their taskmaster's whip. But God, God, he ultimately delivered them. And he did so by using a series of plagues which culminated with the final plague, which was the curse of death upon the firstborn. The only way to avoid the death of the firstborn in their household was to kill a spotless lamb and apply its blood to the top beam and to the two side posts of the door. When the Lord then passed through the city to execute judgment through this plague, he would pass over every home that had applied the blood of the lamb. That night, God instituted the Passover meal and commanded the Jews to celebrate it each year so that they could remember the power of God that saved them out of the bondage of Egypt by applying the blood of the lamb. And check this out. Our testimony sounds very similar to that, doesn't it? It's unbelievable how similar because we too were being held in bondage as we followed the course of the world. And we were held there by the world's wicked king, Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls Satan the lowercase g, God of this world. Every day we worked as slaves under the crack of our taskmaster's whip because we were enslaved to sin. But God, he ultimately delivered us from the curse of our first birth when we applied the blood of the true Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, to our lives. You see, the plague in the Old Testament of the death of the firstborn was picturing the fact that God rejects the first birth, which is why we must be born again. And for those of us that have been born again, God instituted a meal that he's commanded us to observe so that we will remember the power of God that saved us out from under the bondage of this world and sin through the blood of the Lamb on the cross. Wow, that's pretty incredible how God laid out his word for us, isn't it? God used real historic events that actually took place in the Old Testament to, take it, to paint a spiritual picture of what Christianity is all about over 1,500 years before anybody had a stinking clue as to what Christianity even was. And so the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper, they, they have similarities, just like the testimony of those that observe each of them have similarities. But God's reconfiguring both things. He's reconfiguring the meal because he's reconfiguring what our testimony of grace looks like because of the New Testament of his blood. But what I, what I also want us to make a special point to see this morning is, is that Jesus is reconfiguring the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper because as we've mentioned, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Jesus is reconfiguring the Passover meal because he is the reason there was no longer a need to celebrate the Passover because everything about the Passover was pointing to who he was and what he was going to do. Have you ever seen some of the details surrounding the Passover and wondered why in the world is it that God is so concerned in, with all of these seemingly minute details? Have you, ever, have you ever noticed that? He seems to be concerned with all of these details. So let's look at the similarities between the Passover lamb and Jesus. The similarities between the Passover lamb and Jesus. And listen, we're not even going to hit all of the similarities this morning, but understand this connection to Jesus being the Passover lamb, this isn't a connection that we just made on our own or that I just came up with on my own. That wasn't that isn't even how this whole thing works. No, it's a connection the Bible makes in 1 Corinthians 5:7. 1 Corinthians 5:7 says Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, 
that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Okay, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. And the Passover lamb of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb in the New Testament. In Exodus chapter 12, it's, this is the first place where God lays out some of these particulars of how it was that the Israelites were to observe the Passover. And so I want us to spend some time here for a few minutes. And, and these next blanks that are going to be coming on your study sheet are not going to be simultaneously coming on the screen, which means you have to listen extra closely to catch your blanks. Are you ready for that? You ready for that on this New Year's Eve? You're staying up till midnight tonight. Don't act like you're tired right now. You got a long way to go, guys. It's a long, a long way to go. But the first thing that I want us to see is, is quite simply, it had to be a lamb. It had to be a lamb. In Exodus 12, 3, it says the Jews were to sacrifice a lamb. And of course, this is no coincidence because as most of you know, Jesus was the Lamb of God. John chapter 1 and verse 29, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. What a, what a statement that was. Jesus being described that way is no accident, y'all. But it, but, it, but it wasn't just any lamb that you could sacrifice. It had to be a lamb without blemish. It had to be a lamb without blemish. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 5, it says the Passover lamb had to be a lamb without blemish. Listen, it had to be without spot. It had to be undefiled and completely perfect. And you see, Jesus was the lamb without blemish, wasn't he? First Peter chapter 1 and verses 18 and 19, it says, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus was without blemish because he was perfect and because he was sinless. Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus was tempted like we are, yet without sin. And the similarities continue. The Passover lamb, it had to be killed in the evening by the whole congregation. That's an interesting detail. What's, all, what's that all about? In Exodus 12, 6, in the second half of verse 6, it says, And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And interestingly enough, do you realize that Jesus was killed in the evening by the whole congregation? And the Bible makes a special point to mention that. You can't help but notice how Matthew 27, verses 25 and 46, describe the crucifixion. See, in this passage, Pilate, he's not liking, Pilate's not liking how things are going. And he's, he's just told this congregation that's gathered, he tells them that he's washing his hands of the blood of this just person, he says. And then in verse 25, it says, Then answered all the people, how many of them? All the people. And said, his blood be on us and on our children. That's how bold they were in this thing. And then verse 46 references the last recorded words of Jesus prior to his death at the ninth hour, which would have been the Jewish evening. So just like the Passover lamb, all the people said, let his blood be on us and our children. It was literally the whole congregation and his death was in the evening. How about this one? It was to be killed without breaking any bones. It was to be killed without breaking any bones. Exodus 12, 46 and other places give that specific and seemingly arbitrary command. It says at the end of verse 46, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. If you're a Jew in this time, don't you have to be thinking, what difference does it make if we break the bone of a dead animal. Talk about seemingly pointless details. What does that matter? Well, it matters if you're painting a picture. 
Because, but but it, there's, a, there's a reason that we're going to see. But first, I want you to notice that the instructions that God gives to the Jews as to how to handle the Passover lamb here, they're different than the instructions that God gives to the Jews for burnt offerings. Have you ever noticed that? Here's how God tells the Jews to handle burnt offerings in Leviticus 1, verses 6 through 8. He says that you shall lay, ye, ye shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into his pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priest Aaron's sons shall lay the part, the head, and the fat in order upon the wood that is on the fire, which is upon the altar. Listen, you see, God told them to lay the parts on the altar the way he did, and the heads even had to be removed. So the bones had to be broken, you see. Listen. This is how they sacrificed burnt offerings for the next thousand plus years. But that's not how they were told to kill the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was to be handled differently. And the reason is because of that picture, because Jesus was to be killed without breaking any bones. Because have you ever seen what's prophesied about Jesus in Psalm 3420? In Psalm 3420, it, it, it says, he keepeth. All his bones, not one of them is broken. And then in the New Testament, in John 19, 36, it's confirmed that that's exactly what happened. It says, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. But do you remember it actually there for a minute? It looked like that prophecy was in jeopardy. Do you, do you remember this? It looked like the soldiers were about ready to come and break his legs. They broke the legs of the two thieves on either side of him, according to John 19.32. According to John 19.32, it says, Then came the soldiers, and they break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Imagine that. God is using this seemingly arbitrary and pointless detail about how to handle the killing of the Passover lamb, and he's using it to point us to the true Passover lamb who would have no bones broken. How about this random detail that God gives them as to how the Israelites are to take the blood and put it on the post, right? It's, it's blood was to be put on the two side posts and on the upper door posts. Exodus 12 Seven is where we see that specific detail laid out for us. Strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts. Now, those are pr some pretty specific details, wouldn't you say? You know, it, what, why not put the blood in any other variety of ways? There's a lot of ways that you can, you can do that. Why not just put it on the right side of the post? That makes, I mean, that makes, that makes sense to me. Why, why not just put a check mark on the door? That sound, that, I mean, that sounds good, right? But, but, but there's, a, there's a million ways to do this whole thing. But what I want you to see is at the crucifixion of Jesus, there was also blood in three places, wasn't there? Jesus was crucified in between two criminals, wasn't he? That's what Matthew 27, 38 teaches us. That's specifically how this thing shook out. There was blood shed on each side of him, like the two side posts. But then there was the Holy One that shed his blood in the middle, and, and he was the one that was higher like the upper door posts, the Holy One was higher than the two on the side of him. So we see that Jesus shed his blood above two criminals on either side of him. You see, at the crucifixion, there was blood in three places from three crosses, and the blood of one of them was from somebody that was higher than the two on either side of him or for, for anyone for that matter. Another truth about the Passover I'd like for you to consider is that it wasn't to be boiled with water. That's what Exodus 12, 9 teaches us. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water. That's what sodden means, boiled or, or cooked with water. That's, that's another interesting detail that we get from this whole thing. And wouldn't you know it lines right up with what we discover from the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ? Because though Jesus was thirsty, he did not receive water on the cross. And God's pointing us to that. In John 19, verses 28 through 30, God makes sure to include that detail for us. Jesus, he's been through excruciating pain 
at this point. Pain far beyond what our minds can even possibly imagine. And he hasn't said a word about it. And he speaks up and he does say one thing. though: I'm thirsty. He says, I thirst in verse 28. And instead of water, they give him vinegar. And it says, he said he was thirsty so the scripture would be fulfilled. Because in Psalm 69, 21, it had prophesied, they gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So that's why for the Passover meal, God said, I don't want water associated with this one. I'm, gonna, I'm pointing you to something. Don't boil it in water. But look how it was to be cooked. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 9 that that we were just in says, don't sodden it with water, but, but, what, but what? Roast it with fire. Do you see that? Don't sodden it with water, but roast it with fire. It was to be roasted with fire. There's a reason that after the death of the Passover lamb, there's a connection to fire. Because have you ever seen what Jesus was actually up to during those three days and nights that his body lay in the tomb? Have you ever, have you ever seen this? In Acts chapter 2 and verse 34, when talking about the prophecy of David in Psalm 16.10, it says this. It says that in Acts uh, chapter 2, there it is. It says, he, he that's David, Seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. That's a strange verse, isn't it? Jesus' soul was not left in hell, and his flesh didn't see corruption. Have you ever seen that before? You know, what's going, what was going on after Jesus' death prior to his resurrection for those three days, is some interesting things, because check this out. According to Luke 23, 46, where was Jesus' spirit? With the Father. Jesus' spirit went back to the Father. I commend my spirit to the Father. According to Luke 23, 55, Jesus' body was in the tomb or the sepulcher. And where did his soul go? That only leaves one part left, doesn't it? <laughs> where did his soul go? It went to hell. Acts 2.31 that we just saw says Jesus' soul wasn't left in hell, which means it was there. It just wasn't left there. <laughs> so during those three days and nights after Jesus' death and prior to his resurrection, his spirits with the Father... His body's in the tomb, and his soul's in hell. What in the world is Jesus doing down there? Is he just hanging out with Satan, playing cards? What's he, what's he doing? 1 Peter 2.24 says, Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Right? You're familiar with that verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Jesus became sin for us. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Let me ask you then, where'd the sin go? Look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28. Hebrews 9, 28 says something very interesting as well. It says, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him he shall appear the second time, without sin unto salvation. Jesus will appear the second time without sin. Well, we all know that Jesus has no sin of his own. Only the sin he was carrying for us. And we see that this verse is making sure we understand that when Jesus shows up again, that sin he carried and he bore for us will be gone. So where'd it go? See, Jesus didn't just bear our sin. He carried it somewhere. He carried it and he put it where it belongs, y'all. He put it in hell. That's what he did. That's why Jesus went there. It was a necessary element for the completion of the atonement for sin. 
Jesus went down to hellfire to deposit our sins is your blank. And, and, and there's more that Jesus w- was doing while his body was in the grave that we don't have time to get into this morning. But I want you to see that's why after the killing of the Passover lamb of the Old Testament, it was to be cooked and roasted with fire and why it wasn't to be boiled with water. God just sitting there with his paintbrush going like that. If you compare scripture with scripture, I got something for you. I got some goodies in here for you. If you'll just listen to what I say and believe what I say and don't try to interpret what you think I mean. What the, what did I say I did? That's right. That's right. And I'll leave, I'll leave you with one more from this passage in Exodus that I want you to see. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 5, I want you to notice how God divinely inspired his word to be preserved for us as he describes this lamb that was to be sacrificed. Have you ever noticed this before in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3? In Exodus 12 and verse 3, 4, and 5, we see this progression for how this lamb is referred to. In verse 3, it's a lamb. In verse 4, it's the lamb. And in verse 5, it's your lamb. Do you see that? Listen, in order to be saved and in order to be spared from God's wrath and to have access to forgiveness of sins, it required a lamb. But you see, it couldn't just be any old lamb. It had to be the lamb. And the fact that, that, that not just a lamb was sacrificed, but the lamb was sacrificed, and the lamb gave the entire world access to salvation, won't do you any good until he becomes your lamb. Until you receive the sacrifice of the lamb for yourself personally, and the lamb becomes your lamb, the sacrifice of the lamb won't do you any good. It's got to be personal to you. And I, and I tell all, you, all, you all of these things to show you all of these similarities between the Passover lamb of the Old Testament and Jesus, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb of the New Testament, so that you see Jesus was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He was the fulfillment of it, and as the fulfillment of it, he reconfigured that Passover meal into his own supper, the Lord's Supper. So Israel, their testimony is it's painting a picture of our testimony. And, and Israel's Passover lamb is, 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 is painting a picture of the Passover lamb. And there's countless similarities between those things. Everything about the Passover and the testimony of the Jews was all picturing what was coming in the future. And so God reconfigures the old into the new. And that's what we're participating in this morning. And that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. So we need to understand this thing about reconfiguring, but, but it's also about remembering. The Lord's Supper, it's, it's about remembering God's desires for this time that we're spending this morning. He, des- he desires for it to be a time where we look back in remembrance. And, and listen, that's really the significance of the two symbols that comprise the supper, the bread and the cup. That's what it is. He intends for them to bring us back and to remember, to bring us back to something tremendously significant to him and something tremendously significant to our salvation and something he wants us to always have in our remembrance. So let's look at a key passage related to the the, the church observing the Lord's Supper, which of course is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, he says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. God wants to bring us back to a place of remembrance. But to really understand the the full significance of these 
two symbols, I, I want to bring to your attention that this isn't the first time that Jesus has used the metaphor of the bread and the cup and of the symbol of his body and, and his blood. The first time the disciples heard him talk about this was in this discourse or this argument that he's having, with, that Jesus is having with the Jews in John 6. And in the midst of this discourse, Jesus is pressing these religious leaders and he's pressing them on these two things they just couldn't come to stomach. Number one, that Jesus, number one, that he was God in human flesh. And number two, they were sinners in need of a savior. They, you realize those two things that he keeps pushing on them in this passage, those two things are essential elements that people have to come to grips with in order to be saved. You must believe that Jesus Christ is God and you must believe you're a sinner in need of a, design, a, of a divine Savior. In other words, you must believe that your only hope in dealing with the penalty of death and in the penalty of eternal separation from God for all eternity is for God to shed his holy blood for the remission of your sins. And in John 6, again, he hammers that he's pressing those two things. And I want us to look at this passage and hang with me. We're going to read a, a few more verses than, than usual, but the story is very easy to follow. It says, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Here he goes. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. Verse 50. This is the bread. Verse, do you have another? Yeah, this is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him, as the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead, he that eateth of this bread shall live forever. You see, you understand what he's doing here and what Jesus is actually saying and laying out for them. He's using this physical metaphor or physical symbol, his flesh and his blood, to speak of spiritual realities. And he's actually saying this, that unless you can take into yourself that I am God in human flesh and that my blood is your only remedy for sin, unless you can receive that, unless you can accept that, unless you can swallow that, you'll die in your sins. And rather than experience eternal life, you'll experience eternal death. And listen now, in the upper room with the disciples, He's using the same exact symbolism that he laid out here in John 6. It's the same exact metaphor. And God, again, he teaches us this in, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four that we just saw, that this bread is representative of the fact that he is the true bread of God that has come down from heaven. And that he is God in a human body or God in human flesh. And so he's saying from now on, when you eat this supper, let this bread take you back to remember who I am. And as you hold that bread and you eat that bread and you take that bread into you, allow it, as he says at the end of 1 Corinthians 10, 16, allow it to cause you to commune and to fellowship with me and my life as it was lived in that body of flesh. And from now on, when you drink this cup, of this, this cup and this supper, let this fruit of the vine, 
what the end of Deuteronomy 32, 14 calls the blood of the grape. As you drink it, let it take you back and, and let it cause you to remember what I did as I, God in human flesh, shed my blood and tied your death so your sins could be remitted. As you hold that cup and, and as you drink it, take it into you and allow the first part of 1 Corinthians 10, 16, as it says, to cause you to commune with my very blood and cause you to commune and fellowship with me in my death. And listen, that's, the first, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has in his heart and desires for us as we take part of the take part of the bread and the cup this morning. He desires to take us back to those two things which were essential to our salvation, our reception of the fact of who he is, God in a human body, and what he did. He shed his blood. And he desires for us to allow the bread and the cup to cause this to be a time where we're brought back in remembrance or to, or to cause his body and his blood to be brought back into our conscious mind so that we fellowship with him in his very life and in his very death. So he desires this morning for us to, to look backwards in remembrance of who he is and what he did. It's, it's, it's designed to cause us to look backward in remembrance to the cross that gave us access to salvation. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. So it's about reconfiguring, then it's about remembering, and then lastly, this supper is about repenting. It's about repenting. God wants us to look at our present state spiritually, and he wants us to evaluate some things. Listen, this is something that God takes very seriously. He passionately desires to have a time of communing and fellowshipping with us this morning as we reflect and we remember who Jesus was and what he did. He, he wants us to be brought back to that sacrifice that he makes made for us on the cross. God desires to have that time with us this morning. It's something he's passionate about, but it's something that he takes very seriously. And because he takes it so seriously, he's designed and he's designed this, this time to be so special. This bread and this cup that we're going to take, again, it's not something that we should take lightly. We should take it as serious as God does. It's extremely important that we do that this morning because of the warning that we receive in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. And in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper, and here's the warning. And I and I there's I would never preach this message without this part of the passage. It says this: Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged." This isn't, this isn't just some sort of tradition that we're going to. This isn't some sort of religious tradition, Baptist tradition, whatever. It, it isn't anything like that. It's, this is nothing that the Lord takes lightly. You see, in all aspects of life, the things that God designed to be the most beautiful get the ugliest when you mess them up, don't they? That's how it works. And so when we mess up what God designed to be something so beautiful in a time of rich intimacy and fellowship the other side of that coin are the consequences that i just said so if we eat of the bread and drink of the cup unworthily then we eat and drink damnation to ourselves not damnation to hell but we, we eat and drink judgment to ourselves to the point that we could get weak sick or die according to the passage and and i know that, that i know that's heavy but that's how serious god takes the time that we're about to spend together that's how serious he takes it. But what do we do so that we don't approach the Lord's Supper unworthily? The answer is in the passage. Verse 28, we examine ourselves. And verse 31, we judge ourselves. So we examine ourselves and we see if there's sin and we judge it. 
and we own that sin and we disown that sin and we move forward. And we do like 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, which says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see, the answer here isn't just, okay, well, I guess I just won't take the cup. No, that's not the answer. That, that, that beats the alternative of taking it unworthily. I will give you that. But the answer is examining ourselves and repenting and cleansing ourselves from the sin and then turning from it. Let this be the day that all that junk is dealt with in your life and you're freed from that bondage. Those things that you've been holding on to that you know you've got to let go of, those, those temporary pleasure with long-term regret things that we, that we fall in love with. Let today be the day that we deal with all of that. I have no doubt that if you just sat there, which I hope you're doing, and evaluated your life over the last few months, or man, I guess over the last year would be appropriate, as we look at those things, I would imagine there are different things popping up in different people's minds right now that maybe you haven't dealt with them yet. Man, this is a great time to go ahead and nail that thing down and deal with it. Maybe there's some habitual sins that have been coming to your mind that, that you're continuing to struggle with. Maybe some of us are struggling with pride right now. Right? You, can't even, you can't stomach the idea of ever have been wrong, ever getting called to the carpet for anything. You, others, maybe it's bitterness. Maybe you're struggling to forgive somebody right now when you know you've been called to forgive as Christ forgave you. Maybe there's others that the places that your eyes and your mind goes, you'd be ashamed if everybody in this room knew where that was, where that was headed. Others of us, we're not being the husband we've been called to be. We're not being the wife that we've been called to be. Others of us, we may not be parenting our kids the way that we've been called to parent our kids. Maybe some of us know that we've been called to evangelize the lost and we hadn't shared the gospel to a soul in the last year. There's a lot of different things. And so as we're evaluating where we are and as we're evaluating our lives right now, as we commune and fellowship and remember what the Lord did for us, would you come before God right now and own those sins and disown them? Would you do that? Would you get right before God and do that? I'm going to give us some time right now to do that, and I'd like to ask you to bow your heads. And let's do as the Scripture says, and let's take a couple minutes to reflect and examine ourselves. Let's deal with whatever it is that God is revealing to you this morning so we can approach this table worthily and we can commune and fellowship with the Lord, and this time can be everything God intended it to be. You spend the next few minutes examining yourself,
As Wendy continues to play, deacons and leaders, would you come up that I've asked to come up and like to ask you to prepare the table and pass out the bread and cup.
Let's commune with the Lord as we remember who Jesus was. Jesus loved us so much that he humbled himself. And he came to this planet as God in human flesh. What an incredible thought. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And as Paul is teaching us about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, here's what he says, starting in verse 23. He says, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, and, and, and let's stop right there, and I, I'd like to ask Jeff if he would stand and give thanks for the symbol of the bread. when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Now let's commune with the Lord as we remember what Jesus did. Jesus, Jesus loved us so much that he gave his life for us on the cross. He died so that, so that we might live. And, and back to 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul is teaching us about the Lord's Supper, here's what he continues saying, starting in verse 25. He says, After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. And I'd like to ask Ed to stand and thank the Lord for the symbol of the cup.
the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And in Matthew 26, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the upper room, verse 30 teaches us that they actually ended the supper by singing a hymn together. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And so this church has traditionally done just that, and we've done that a little different than we have typically done, typically do in a, in a normal service. And so... What we've typically done and traditionally done, I'd like to ask for you guys to do it and stand, if you would stand and, and make a circle, however we make that circle best, well, I think we, I, I have faith, we'll figure it out. And Jeff, will you lead us when this time's right? 